Welcome. I'm Suresh Rao, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of the Indian Summer Festival, and we're glad to share this event with you. Indian Summer Festival's podcast series was recorded at ISF 2020. In response to the global pandemic, our 10th anniversary edition moved online with 10 specially curated events. From Grammy award-winning musicians to emerging poets, Nobel Prize-winning economists to visionary environmental warriors, this year's programming spanned literary dialogues, intellectual debates, musical performances, and interactive visual arts experiences. I'd like to thank a few institutions for standing by us in a difficult time and helping us to continue to present outstanding artists and serve our loyal and growing audience. Special thanks to our founding partners, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and the University of British Columbia, our emerging artist sponsor, RBC, music series partner, Creative BC, our funders, the Government of Canada, the City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, Province of BC, and the BC Arts Council, and of course, our media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC, and Spice Radio. Welcome to Zanani Zamana Zameen, a special edition of Indian Summer Festival's Tiffin Talks. Our Tiffin Talk series is a lunchtime ideas series showcasing a diverse group of thinkers, artists, and innovators gathering to share ideas and a meal together. This year, this gathering took place around a virtual long table. Join writer Shauna Singh Baldwin, filmmaker Baljeet Sangra, and visual artist Sandeep Joel for an in-depth discussion moderated by Savi Baines on how place and society affect how we imagine the feminine. The speakers reflect on the clash of tradition and modernity within the context of patriarchy and gender inequality and share how their work creates space for South Asian voices. Hear their perspectives on cultural identity, storytelling, and place in South Asian culture and how these themes inform their artistic practice. Tiffin Talk, Zanani Zamana Zameen is presented in partnership with Sariat Gallery. Thank you, Srish, for that warm welcome. We're so thrilled to be partnering with Indian Summer Festival's Tiffin Talk. On behalf of Alison Raja, our gallery's director here at Surrey Art Gallery, and myself, Savi, would like to formally invite you to the gallery. Today starts our first live and virtual event inside the gallery's main walls. As you can see behind me, the beautiful paintings by the local artist, Don Lee Leger, from the exhibition, Counting the Steps of the Sun. Today's event is called Zanani Zamana Zemin, Feminist Thinking, Society and Place. I'd like to acknowledge that Surrey Art Gallery is located on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including Kwantlen, Katsi and Semiamu nations. This unceded and ancestral territory has been never given up and embodies a really deep history. I'd like to also acknowledge my own settler position as an uninvited guest and culpability against the lives of Indigenous people. Surrey Art Gallery strives on an ongoing basis to be relevant to Indigenous communities. I'd like to also hold place to the palpable grief in our society as a result of police brutality and racialized violence against Black, Indigenous, and racialized people. Surrey Art Gallery supports Black Lives Matters as part of an anti-racist global movement 
We commit to listening, educating, and taking action as we move forward. As part of Indian Summer Festival's Tiffin Talk, where ideas and food are shared together as we share a meal, just as we do in our own South Asian culture, we have taken inspiration for this Tiffin Talk from feminist artist Judy Chicago's 1974 dinner table. In Chicago's installation, she represented 39 historical women, women of accomplishment who are both familiar and unfamiliar, mythical and rarely spoken of. For today's event, we have asked each speaker to invite their own guests, a South Asian woman from history. These women have forged difficult pathways, fought for human rights, and their lives have become lightning rods for future movements. I am so thrilled and so honored to be in the presence of these powerful women. Hello, and now here we are. The virtual team has come together. Welcome, everyone. A warm welcome to each of you, Buljeet, Shauna, and Sandeep. Thank you for taking the time to spend with us this afternoon. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. As I'm here at the gallery space, Sandeep and Buljeet in Vancouver, and Shauna joining us across the border from Milwaukee and Wisconsin. I think it's quite incredible to be able to weave and knit these conversations virtually. So a sincere welcome to each of you. And thank you to our listeners. Welcome from afar and near, wherever you might be, I welcome you to today's talk. And please know that there will be a Q&A after. I look forward to reading your questions. Before we start, I'd like to briefly frame today's conversation and the title for the event. As some of you may know, Zanani, Zamana, and Zamin are Urdu words that poetically describe the feminine, a period of time and land, place, and ground. As I start to think about your individual art practices and the visuals you share with the world to read, observe, and watch, each of you bring an interesting feminist narrative, which is the Zanani, the feminine. And I want to also explore how the zamana, which is time, age, and period, informs your practice, even while the zameen, which is your place, ground, and land, gives you the platform to present your ideas. So let's get started. I'd like to introduce you to our first speaker, Shauna Singh Baldwin. She is a writer of fiction, poetry, and essays, having been published in literary and popular magazines anthologies and newspapers. Her most recent re publication, Reluctant Rebellions, is a collection of speeches and essays delving into her personal journey as a writer and a South Asian woman who, as Shauna says, needs to become as hyphenated as possible. Thank you, Shauna, for being with us today and sitting at the table with me virtually. Shauna, I'd like to begin by asking you who invited you as your guest today. So my guest today is Noor Inayat Khan. Uh, Noor Inayat Khan was a descendant of Tipu Sultan, the Tiger of Mysore, an 18th century ruler of South India. She grew up in France, speaking French and Urdu. She was brought up a nonviolent Indian nationalist by her Sufi musician father, Hazrat Inayat Khan. Yet in London, Noor trained as a secret agent for the British Special 
operations executive, and she took arms training and learned to shoot and kill. On a moonlit night at the height of World War II, Noor was flown into occupied France under the codename Madeleine. She arrived with a false pass passport, a clutch of French francs, and a pistol. She soon began transmitting secret information for the Résistance. When almost every member of her spy network was captured by the Germans, that's 1,500 people, she refused to return to London. She began moving from one safe house to the other, transmitting clandestinely for three months, evading the Germans until she was betrayed. My question was who betrayed her? Arrested, Noor was interrogated about the timing and location of D-Day. She revealed nothing. The Germans sent her to a criminal prison instead of a concentration camp. They kept her shackled hand and foot for nine months. Why did the Germans treat Noor differently from other captured SOE women? That was my question. On September 11th, 1944, as the Germans retreated before the invading allies, they transported Noor to Dachau, along with three other women of the SOE, and there they executed her. But the transmission of this Muslim woman had contributed to the defeat of fascism in Europe. Noor was posthumously awarded the Croix de Guerre and the George Cross, one of only three women from the Special Operations Executive to receive the latter medal. In my 2004 biographical novel, The Tiger Claw, I explore the questions raised by Noor's story. A bust of Noor stands in London's Gordon Square, erected in 2012. It's the first statue to an Indian woman in Britain and the first to any Muslim. In 2014, the UK issued a stamp in her honor as well. That's Noor Inayat Khan. Welcome to the table. Thank you, Shana, for bringing Noor Inayat Khan to the table, a Muslim woman who contributed to the fight against fascism in Europe. It's important to have her with today, especially in these times, so thank you. Secondly, I'd like to introduce Sandeep Johal. Sandeep is a visual artist whose work ranges from intricate black and white line drawings to colorful large-scale murals. Her art practice is aesthetically and conceptually inspired by her South Asian heritage and is an expression of her social and cultural concerns, particularly gender justice. Sandeep, welcome. Thanks for having me, Selvi. Of course, thank you. Thanks for coming. I wonder, Sandeep, can you also share with our listeners who you also invited with your guests and sitting with me today? Yes, I chose a very intriguing figure, um, a rebel, a legendary Daku, uh, Fulan Devi, the India's bandit queen, um, to be my guest at the table. And I just, I have so many questions about her and her life. Um, her short life seemed to be one big exercise in endurance. And reading her story, I wondered how much can one woman endure in her life? Um, she was born into abject poverty and married off as a child bride at the age of 11 to a man um, three times her senior. And he was quite abusive, so she ran away. But her family sent her back to her husband, and then she ran away again. And this time her in-laws didn't allow her back. 
So she'd become a disgrace to her family, a social outcast, and she joined a gang. And with her gang, she exacted revenge on her husband and left a note in the village saying older men should not marry young girls. Um, and then she ended up being kidnapped by a rival gang and held captive for weeks um, and was sexually assaulted by a large number of men. And she escaped and joined another gang. And together with that gang, she avenged her assailants. Um, so two years after the massacre, Indira Gandhi's government negotiated a public surrender and she surrendered in front of in front of 10,000 people. She refused to lay arms in front of the police. She wanted a photo of Gandhi and the goddess Durga and then she would surrender, which I thought was quite a cool condition. Um, and then she was charged for several crimes, uh, went to prison for 11 years, or sorry, was in prison for 11 years awaiting trial, but then her charges were dropped. And I wondered at that point in her life, would she go back to a life of crime? Would she just kind of give up and feel defeated about everything that she'd been through? But no, she became an MP in India's government for a few years, um, really trying to dismantle the system from the inside out. And then at the age of 37 in 2001, she was assassinated in retaliation for the massacre. And so for me, her story is just such an incredible story of resistance, rebellion, resilience, and of course, endurance. So I'd welcome Fulan Devi to the table. Yeah, how incredible. I mean, Fulan Devi overcame, overcame as, you, as you shared, such horrific odds. And it's so wonderful to see, I think, especially with your work, Sandeep, that you dedicated some of your art to highlight the lives of women like Fulan Devi and uh, we will touch about that later in our conversation, so thank you. And lastly, but not least, I'd like to introduce to you our third speaker, Buljeet Sangra. Buljeet is a Vancouver-based filmmaker who uses documentary and factual entertainment to explore social and cross-cultural issues. She has had six nominations for the Leo Award and directed the profound Because We Are Girls film that pays tribute to the strength to South Asian women in the face of trauma. Buljeet, welcome. Hi, Sadhvi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, if you can share with our listeners as well who you also brought to the table. Yes. Um, my dinner guest is Jyoti Singh. I'm sure um, most of our audience is, is familiar with her, but a bit about her. Jyoti Singh was a young, vibrant woman who, according to people who knew her and her parents, was kind, a generous soul. She was the first in her family to go to university. She was studying to be a doctor. In 2012, she was out with a male friend and they got on a bus to go home after seeing a movie. That bus ride turned into a brutal assault and rape and she was left for dead. She did go to the hospital, um, but died 13 days later. Um, she was actually sent to uh, Singapore and uh, died there two days later to get better treatment. And um, it was just such a profound story, just the intense misogyny of it. Um, uh, even now when I think about it, it just, yeah, shakes me to the core and, you know, that they were left on the street, her and her friend, and nobody came to help. And even when the police came, they weren't taking her to the hospital. They're just asking all these crazy questions. Um, and after she died, women took to the streets in India. They shared their stories. They demanded justice. The protest shined a light on gender-based violence, gender inequality, and the patriarchy that supports this oppression. 
I mean, this is 2012, long before the Me Too movement, Women's March. India, you know, shone a global light on gender-based violence. She was referred to in the media as Narabaya, which means fearless, but it's also a way of re reporting about the incident without saying her name. And I remember seeing her mother speak to the media and say that she wants everyone to know her name and say it, Jyoti Singh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm already so emotional as a sh sharing my dinner guest with you right now. I, it's almost like I can't even speak. I saw a play, um, I don't know exactly what year it was, um, maybe a year or two after, in Vancouver called Nirabaya, and it was at the York Theatre on Commercial Drive. And the playwright and the artist in the play were from India, and these were women who experienced sexual violence, and they shared their stories with the audience. It was so profound. Um, I remember at one point at the beginning of the play, they asked the audience, who here has been impacted by sexual violence and two thirds of the hands of the audience went up. So just tells you like what we've gone through and how we just keep this hidden and the shame. And the play was so powerful. And I went with Jiti who's um, in the film and this is before we started filming the film because we're girls, but the two of us were just weeping and holding hands and we felt really without saying words, if these women can share their story and break through those barriers of shame, you know, what a seva for everyone, you know, um, that for the greater good and to always go back to that face of pain, but for the greater good. And they toured this play, um, you know, across the country. And uh, yeah, I, that stayed with me. And then, you know, later down the road in my life, I got to, um, bear witness to a journey, a story. And um, that's why I really want to pay tribute to Jyoti Singh. And um, yeah, and I encourage people to look her up and know more about her and say her name. So that's my guest, Jyoti Singh. Incredible. Yeah, thank you, Buljeet. I think you touched a little bit about Seva. And I think that's, you know, as part of the work that you're doing, especially in, in South Asian culture and sharing the stories of these incredible women who've been silenced. And so thank you. And so I'm part of Jyoti. The world stood still for many weeks and we're all remembering and praying for Jyoti's recovery in her, in her death. I hope we have become more committed to fighting injustices all around us. So thank you for inviting these incredible women from history to the table today. I feel so honored to be in their presence. And I can only imagine the conversations that we would be having, having today if they were still alive. So thank you. And it's so important to share these women from history and um, as you, as you uh, have shared, Bulji, to say their names. So thank you. And perhaps this is a good segue to introduce an artwork that Sandeep created for the Facade Festival here in Vancouver. Sandeep, as you know, I've always been fascinated by your generational insights because you bring historical figures like Jyoti Singh into your visual art form. And I wonder if you can tell us the animation you created honoring Jyoti. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, when Baljeet was speaking about Jyoti Singh, I could feel those feelings that you were feeling as well. And I remember when I first heard of what happened to Jyoti, I just, I think I was stunned. I couldn't believe that this could happen to a human being. And collectively, I feel the outrage was palpable and something in our collective conscious shifted after that incident. Um, 
personally, I felt an anger and a despair that I don't think I had felt before or, or known before. And I wanted to tell Jyoti's story, but I didn't want it to be about my anger. And I was feeling so much anger at that time. And I didn't have the tools to work through the anger. So I just kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking about how I could share her story in a way that would do it justice and a way that would really truly honor her. And I got the opportunity last year, um, seven years after um, Jyoti left us. And it was through Facade Festival uh, run by Broad Arts Foundation. So every two years, they invite 10 artists to create a digital work to be projected onto the facade of the Vancouver Art Gallery. And I thought this would be the perfect scale and public platform to finally share her story. And so I created a five-minute animation with a local animator, Bambi Edland. And um, I told Jyoti's story in kind of five parts. And so the first part was looking at Jyoti and the attack. And then it moved into the protest because there were months and months of protest in India. And it was a real turning point, I feel. Um, and then we move into sort of the repercussion, the people who are left behind, um, which segues into the healing that can come from this. And then I always want to make sure I'm talking about women and their stories in a, a lens of beauty. And a, there's a sense of triumph and hope. And so that was my goal with the piece even though it's a really heavy topic to leave it on this note of hope. Because for me, if I don't feel there's hope, then there's no point in doing the work that I do. Thank you, Sandeep, for sharing yeah, that animation and, and Jyoti's story. Um, I think what you've shared is, it's an incredible honor that, you know, for your work to be displayed on such a large stage and for everyone to witness it as a testament to Jyoti's story. Um, is incredible. And I remember being there that day also uh, being a witness to, to that and how the emotions just kind of came over me not knowing, you know, her, her actual story. Mm -hmm. And so um, for you to share it in, in such a way that um, as your own narrative is, is incredible. So thank you. Thank you. And I think um, into that, into that uh, question, um, I wanted to ask you, as we think of Zamana, you know, in its contemporary moment, how have historically silent voices around gender inequality informed your visual storytelling in a way that reflects in your own artistic journey? Yeah, so when I think about this question, I think about silence and I think of how it is a tool of power and control because how do you lord power over people? You silence them. And we've seen throughout history so many marginalized groups being silenced and right now we're seeing the effects of that silence in all of the protests that are happening around the world. And so, you know, growing up, I've always had a really strong sense of fairness and justice, especially within our culture and seeing how differently boys were treated from girls and how boys were celebrated over girls. It really impacted me and I, I took it to heart and I questioned a lot of things. I asked my parents a lot of questions about, you know, why, why are boys so revered and why are girls not revered and they never had an answer really it, it was it's so ingrained you know that it's just like oh that's just the way it is and I mean we have to dismantle that answer in order to change things and move forward um, you know and so I'm really interested in in telling the stories of women um, because so many have been permanently silenced through sexual violence and 
their stories shouldn't die with them. You know, I want to um, restore power to them in the afterlife. I want to tell their stories when they're no longer here to speak for themselves. I don't want them to be erased. I want them to be remembered. And I feel like it's our duty as a society to remember these women and to honor them by making real change in their names. And like Baljeet was saying about, you know, Jyoti's mom saying, say her name. I want you to know her name. We need to know these women's names and we need to know their stories so that we can change things. Um, so when I, when I do create work around women's stories, it's always through a lens of beauty because I want to make sure that I am doing my best to honor them and honor their legacy and their spirit. And it's important to me for my work to be very aesthetically beautiful. Um, you know, and then when people take a, a longer, closer look at the work, they realize that maybe there's something in the work that's a bit unsettling. And then hopefully that will give them the curiosity to go figure out what the story's about or, you know, just sort of research on their own because I never want to hit anyone over the head with, you know, the stories. I want to give the information in a very digestible way and then have people take that information and research further. Um, yeah, and so that was evident in my work with Rest in Power. That was my first solo show in 2017, and it was dedicated to 12 women whose murders had really impacted me deeply. And I noticed when I was talking about the show at the beginning, I would talk about, oh, 12 women who died. And I realized, well, they didn't die. They were murdered, and they were murdered for simply being women. And I had to make that distinction. And another thing I wanted to make sure I was doing was focusing on empowerment rather than victimhood. Because sometimes, you know, there can be a fine line between telling someone's story in an empowered lens or treating them like a victim and nothing else. And so it's really become a cornerstone, cornerstone of my work um, to share these stories and tell these stories. Um, and I bring that into my murals as well. So you know, I do large scale public murals and I center women in these murals. I create narratives with these women and they're larger than life and they're right there. They're telling you, you know, we're here, we're not going anywhere. We deserve to be here. We deserve to be visible. Um, we deserve to take up space. We have value, we have worth. And, you know, my hope is that when women see those larger than life figures, it will encourage them to take up space and you know feel their value because you know we're we're taught as women to shrink we're taught that our voice doesn't matter our thoughts don't matter we need to take up less space but you know we're here to change that and things are changing and women are you know standing up and speaking out and really really being vocal about things that are wrong in our society and kind of leading the charge in how we can change it so for me as an artist, it's particularly important that I use my platform as a platform for change. And I feel it is my duty as an artist to use my work to talk about the tough situations and the uncomfortable conversations. Um, I like discomfort. I'm not scared of discomfort. I like talking about taboo things. Um, I just want to open up a conversation and invite people to have that conversation with me and come up with solutions together. Yeah, incredible. I mean, as you're touching base on beauty and, and kind of sharing these like really horrific stories, but sharing in your artwork, I mean, and having the tensions around that too. I mean, mm -hmm. you were 
your murals do share um, these stories. And I think what's important that they're so distinct and they're, they're so distinctly yours as well, um, kind of as you can see them around the city and, and as they're being shared. So uh, yeah, incredible that you're sharing the voices of these women. Um, it's, it's really important for everyone to kind of um, see and think these through. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I just want to add one more thing um, also that it's really important that when people look at my work, they can tell that it's been made by a South Asian hand mm -hmm. and that it's been made by a South Asian woman. Um, it's really important for me to have that representation and that visibility for South Asian people as well. Absolutely. And, and it, um, I know it reflects as well um, for your passion for social justice issues. So thank you. Thank you. And you've been inspired by our next speaker's book, uh, Selector of Souls, uh, in your recent, as you've shared, Rest in Power artworks. And I just want to quickly share that those drawings are also have been, were a part of this table today as well, um, cool. uh, as the goddesses and the, and the women that have been murdered. Um, so it's fitting for me to welcome uh, Shauna Singh Baldwin to speak with us today about how the feminine which is also a set of qualities present in both men and women, has shifted and changed through the ages. Shauna, I was just thinking, you know, when you develop your characters, how do you bring the Zanani or feminine imagery from the past to your reader? Um, you know, especially Selector of Souls. I hear the voices of women who are struggling to define their own lives by breaking with tradition, like Dhammani and Anu. Well, you know, Imagery from the past is fraught with danger. Um, often traditional imagery equates women with earth or cows or even objects such as jewels instead of people. Images of women have been crafted to appeal to the male gaze and porn is lucrative for that reason. And then the imagery for Eastern women paints us as compliant dolls. Symbols for the feminine are often passive or lesser or subordinate or effect as opposed to masculine, which is cause. So again, it's created to please men, you know, and so we, um, we have to get away from that kind of imagery. Just like we're fighting racism and casteism, we're also fighting the past at every step. Uh, we're fighting the ideas of our elders. We're fighting the ignorance of previous generations using all the gifts and the powers that they've given us. So there's this irony in that as well. But as a storyteller, my job is to deal with the particular um, rather than the general. It's to individualize out of the group and to try not to resort to the sloppy shorthand of, um, of stereotyping. So um, just for example, you're kind and nurturing and altruistic, you know, not just because you're a woman, you're kind and altruistic or something like that because you're you. So that makes it individual. Um, and a man can be kind and nurturing and altruistic too. Uh, it doesn't make him less of a man, you know. So um, it's very important to me to bring that imagery from the past, but not to glorify it, not to say, oh, that's fantastic. And aren't we nostalgic about it? And 
isn't it wonderful? A lot of it was not wonderful. And that's why we are where we are today, you know? Um, so for me, my women characters have the right to come to a definition of their own version of what is feminine. Um, and I think any woman, any woman will find traits in herself that we've traditionally thought of as masculine as well. Bravery, resourcefulness, strategizing, reasoning, acting, planning, organizing, managing, controlling. All of those things are male as well as female. The warrior woman is also feminine, not just masculine, you know. So for me, that's how it's dangerous to bring imagery from the past into the present without some kind of a context around it and some kind of a journey that moves us from the past into the present and allows the characters to come to that um, different place that we all need to come to. I think you've touched like on a really unique um, piece is the glorifying and the glorifying of the past. And so um, if I encourage listeners to read Shauna's books, um, in particular to Selective Souls, because I think it's, you know, you're bringing the traditions too from, from our, from history and from, in this, in, as we've shared, like in this modern way. So, and um, the relationship between Dominique and Anur is quite unique. So I think this would be a good uh, uh, intersect if you can, uh, don't mind sharing a page or two from Selective Souls. I will. Um, this particular reading is um, from partway into the book, almost to the end of the book, but I chose it because um, it's about creativity and it's about the creative process. Um, the scene is, is actually um, where Damani is a Hindu widow of about 50 and her husband's name was Pyara Singh. She used to work in Delhi with a deaf woman she called Mem Sahib. She's holding a spirit possession in this scene uh, because she's not satisfied with the way the, the male um, shaman uh, held it, the oja. She's trying to do this because she doesn't like the way that the, the guy did it. Um, so she becomes possessed herself in order to speak her truth. And so this is the description of how that feels to be possessed by a goddess. And to me, that's also the same process of being creative. The drumming grows faster, louder. Damini's bones shift. Her spine tingles and curves into the shape of a sitting cobra. One shoulder is rising, rolling back, then the other. She sways, nods, rocks back and forth and moans. Men's faces blur. Will the goddess answer her call? Blood and spirit open to rhythm. The air vibrates with the billion vibrations that are rising within Dhamini. An electrifying charge fills the air and a billion interconnections seem to happen. Dhamini can see past, present and future at once as if watching a TV. She can smell them too along with the spore of every body in the room. She is sitting, then standing. Mental and material energies merge. She is splitting. Is this dying? Herself flows out. No, it's that split state she knew in pregnancy, a shifting inside of herself to make way for another, 
another who watches unseen. The energy of riti, commitments and consciousness and connections revolves around her. She draws it in, takes in spirit, offers herself as the vortex of maximum energy, energy that impels her to speak. Faltering strange sounds she does not recognize as her own. First syllables, then words, then phrases, not her own, not her voice, not her speech, but a lost language from a time before time. Damini's arms flail, she is shaking, trembling, she does not recognize the voices, but senses, sound, intent, and a white heat rising from her womb to energize all matter from the very smallest particle to the whole. Who is it who comes? Blood beats at her temples, beats to the drumbeat all around, making connections for which, as yet, there are no names. The unseen is not sleep, asleep or simple, but demonically active. Familiar asuras snap inside her, demons with long fangs. Now outside, frothing, they seem to rake her flesh with blood-tipped talons, unexplored angers, angers swallowed and digested along with every fear she's ever given herself, is incarnated in these hungry ghosts, and they in her. They have lived within Dharmani from the time Dharmani was first taught she didn't matter. They have sucked in every need Dhamani never, ever suppressed, every want that became don't want, every word she ever believed insignificant, every insult received. They swirl up from karma she has not expiated and orbit the room. They roar as they devour the present and the past. They command her breath, speak with her mouth, gesture with her arms. They will touch her future if she gives them power. She opens herself to Sri Shakti and the Asuras of fear subside. She is receiving a new language now, not an outer language like English, but a human inner feeling sense rising from beyond sense, from all the knowing she already has. Its gestures are familiar, like that language she spoke with Memsad, which had no high, no low, no he or she. One voice is more insistent, struggling up from all the others. Someone laden with gifts is present, someone from a time of abundance. Her head is full and empty all at once. She feels a great clarity and openness, thinking, thought, any ideas she brought into this room full of expectant people fly from her and recede as she allows her body to enact what she witnessed only once before. Where does the voice come from? From a distance and from nearby, from above, from below ground, from air moving into a pair of ears, opening eyes, opening mouth, mouth so tightly closed. Beings appear and move through her mind, move fast, too fast, one feels stronger than the rest. Its Shakti wants to utter itself through her. She's losing her grip on the present. The voice springs from a place ever known till there's only this moment, ever expanding, ever collapsing, and she is the rod bringing it, birthing the voice. Incredible, thank you so much for sharing. You really, as, you, as you're sharing your words and um, your voice, uh, all it's really come alive 
And so thank you. I think it's um, really important, uh, especially this book. So if listeners are able to, I highly recommend uh, reading Sector of Souls um, and beautiful that also uh, some people have taken inspiration from it as well. So thank you, Shauna. As some of you may have recently seen the incredible film, Because We Are Girls. And here with us today is Buljeet Sangra, director. Thank you, Buljeet. You know, you metaphorically moved the earth through your work and truly our zameen has shifted because of the film. So I wanted to ask you, how do you situate, situate your filmmaking in women's lives and especially about the most personally violent experiences that lift the veil on sexual predation and the confines of patriarchy? Yeah, well, I would say with this film, because we're girls, um, it's been a real journey and an honor to bear witness to the story of a Punjabi family confronted uh, with the impact of sexual abuse. Um, I was able to situate myself in the story by first having a relationship with one of the sisters. We were friends years before the film, so there was trust there. I was Jiti, and then I got to know the sisters and then the parents. So before even um, in the process, before bringing out camera, you know, a lot of visits and getting to know each other, sharing about myself, their self, you know, I was able to have maki um, roti um, and so I get the house with the parents and just share our shared history. You know, you know how Indian parents are always like, where are you coming from India? Where's your village? Or when did your family come? Just to find common ground. You know, they're assessing me out too. So it was an honor just, you know, in building in that relationship. Um, so the film unfolds over three years. So I was both a friend and a filmmaker following the story. So it got to a point where there was a lot of trust built and often they didn't feel the camera was on. Um, I believe I was able to get deeper with the family over time because we have this shared lived experience and come from the same community and culture. So much doesn't need to be explained, you know, and the sisters talk about, you know, Sharam and, you know, we, as in South Asian women, we know we hear that word Sharam at a very young age to feel shame about everything almost. And then the word Besharam without shame, you know, you just, you don't have to really just certain words and they just hit you in your core of your growing up and your experience. So I absolutely understood why the sisters kept silent and what coming out would have meant 20 plus years later and the point of view of their parents, you know, the clash of tradition and modernity. And, you know, when they talk about family honor, is it, you just, you know what they mean, right? Uh, it's, I find it even hard to sometimes explain is it in English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I understand how important it was to get their trust and honor that in the film and um, that their story was everyone's story. I remember saying to you know her parents that this is everybody's story. Your experience will help other parents. You know, um, this is not an isolated incident. This is everybody's story. And I'll just share a little anecdote. But when we finished the film and we were uh, going to open a festival in Vancouver, Doxa, I really needed the, the whole family to watch this film. Some of them had seen it, and I went to the parents' house to show it. And I remember being so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I kept looking over at the mom and dad because uh, there's this big climactic scene. Um, if you've seen the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where the girls confront their parents. Anyways, the, the, the film finished and, you know, I asked her parents, you know, auntie, uncle, how was that? How are you? You know, and 
they were fine and they gave me a big hug and you know we all had a group hug so yeah that was huge and I think you know when we tell our own stories we really need to come from that place of understanding and uh it's important um because we're always fighting against stereotypes and people's perceptions of our community so I sometimes just feel like um, the weight of that was on my shoulders for sure. <laughs> um, also, in terms of space, uh, you know, going along in this process with the sisters, you know, the mantra really was there's no shame in the truth, and we all need to stand in the truth. I mean, that's when everything's got uh, um, kind of sidetracked and challenges were huge and obstacles. That was always the mantra, you know, to be, they supported each other and there was no shame in standing in the truth. And I think as a filmmaker, um, you know, the deeply, uh, I always feel the personal story is the universal story. You know, you do the, uh, do a project or follow a story, you don't need to please everybody, stay as personal. There's a lot of Punjabi in the movie. <laughs> You know, the climactic scene, you know, is broken up into is almost entirely a Punjabi and it needed to be that way. You know, people could read subtitles, but we need to be authentic and to the truth. Um, you know, the film has Bollywood clips that show how Bollywood informed their idea of fantasy and escape, but also reinforced uh, traditional gender roles. I felt that was really important. And I think, you know, we can all relate to that. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, the sisters sought justice, you know, system and in, in the system and took the abuser and their, their cousin to Supreme Court. It was a long journey. They did it to protect their daughters and the next generation. So the film in the extension is also Seva. You know, we acknowledge that too while we were doing this because it was not easy. There were so many uh, delays, trials and tribulations. Uh, they were ready to go to court. I'd be ready to film it and it would just be adjourned. And this happened for a year. So it was a really uh, tough journey to be on and and, uh, and rewarding. But yeah, I really saw firsthand what women go through when um, they pursue justice and how the, the, the systemic barriers of doing that. When we um, opened the film, which is another antidote, the whole family came and the parents were there and uh, they got a standing ovation. And people, a lot of men I know, and young men came to the father and thanked him for being brave and, you know, being real in that scene. So I think that's really important. And I think they felt that their story is going to ripple and have a greater effect. So, yeah, I just want to share that anecdote. Um, in terms of my lens, I feel the personal is political. Um, the story follows a journey, but weaves past, present, their childhood, immigrant experience, racism, you know, there was intense emotional moments, but there was also moments of joy, resilience, sisterhood, you know, uh, lightness and darkness. And I think that's really important too. Uh, and in terms of patriarchy, you know, I just really hope the film challenges that cultural social values that perpetuate women's subservience and obedience. Uh, we hope to shift this misplaced shame because that's what gives perpetrators power. Um, yeah, so that's sort of... Uh, been my experience on this film and situated, you know, how I was able to do it and, um, and the systems of patriarchy around it. Thank you, Baljeet. Yeah, I mean, 
just as you're sharing, you know, the piece around Shadam, you know, and, and shame, it is, as, you, as you've shared, it's so ingrained in our culture. Um, but in, in the film in itself, there's so much vulnerability, so much bravery. And I think one piece um, that you have touched on too is that how much other women were coming out as well and sharing their own stories. So in that sense, the, the support and um, having this, this community come together um, during this time, as we know, as it happens in, in so many other different cultures as well, sure. Um, but thank you for, you know, your seva for, for putting this um, forward uh, in our community and during this time, especially. So thank you. And I was just also curious and, and something I was thinking about, you know, as we think of, you know, uh, Zameen, I'm curious, like, what has been your Zameen, your grounding and the place that motivates and inspires you to do this? In just in a couple senses, if you can, yeah. Well, just being true to myself, where you know I'm a, a South Asian woman. I was born here. My father was born here. My mom's from India. Um, I feel uh, in doing this work, it's a kind of a privilege to be an artist and a storyteller. Really, uh, I feel sometimes, but also I feel like. Uh, when, especially say this film and other films, I feel the voice of past generations, you know? Um, and I think, you know, my parents, especially my mother and grandparents, you know, they were sowing those seeds and you just don't know what's gonna happen with it. But I really feel that I'm able to take it further. But my mom's always, a, that grounding, I think it's really come also from my own family. My mother's really mm -hmm. grounded me and said, you know, it's up to your generation to change things. We couldn't, we had no choices. You know, my mom wasn't allowed an education. Her parents thought, why would you educate a girl? But, you know, they put their sons to master's uh, degrees. So, you know, my mom, every, anything that came up, she was always like, why are you accepting, you know, why is your generation accepting this? You need to challenge this. So I think, um, you know, this film and this sort of journey I'm in on has definitely been reflective of that place. In terms of place, it's sort of an anecdote, but um, sort of a little say, uh, Anyway, let's share the story. It just came to pop mm. in my head. I was, uh, when before the screening of Because We're Girls in Vancouver, we opened the Doxa Festival at the Playhouse. And I got a call, like, like I think of the day before, or could you be on the cover of the Georgia Strait? I'm like, what? <laughs> Anyways, I'm like, well, and then they're like, find a location that would have some meaning to you. And I'm like, well, where would I, what has meaning to me or a space? And immediately I thought of Sandeep's mural with a woman standing on a tiger, which is like blocks from my house. And that was really the mantra of this whole journey, women standing on tiger. Mm. And, you know, I really thank you, Sandeep, for having that. I, I just, I mean, it, that was the, I think gave two options. It didn't make the George Street, but I only did one studio shot and I wanted it there because that meant so much. I've never been anywhere where we're reflected in such a strong way, visually, it's pretty powerful. So in terms of place, you know, thank you for creating spaces and, and uh, being in my space, you know, and Shauna Singh Baldwin, thank you so much for all your stories and um, honoring women and us drawing inspiration from those women, you know. So, yeah, it's been a real honor to share space with all of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Even virtual space is wonderful. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Puljeet. Um, I feel such an honor today to be in the presence and even virtually with you three today and especially with um, the powerful women uh, from history as well. So thank you.
yeah, so I guess, you know, each of you have pushed the boundaries of storytelling by creating your artistic forms that inform and motivate society to reflect the feminine in our age of existence. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. And we'll get to have some time to hear from our listeners today. Uh, so I will share some questions with everyone today. I have a question from Sharn, Sharn Cornsandra. Um, her question is, how to make art and aesthetics accessible in terms of South Asian languages? I don't know if Shauna, I'll, I'll cue that one for you possibly. Okay, um, well, language is so fraught because we are going from multilingual people down to one language. When I write, for instance, the, the problem is that the story only can be written in one language, which is, in my case, English. But the people that I'm writing about or the characters I'm writing about think in many different languages and they speak in many different languages, often within the same sentence. But um, if you're writing in English, there's another problem in that you're coming from gendered languages to the to, uh, to English and every object has a gender in Hindi or Punjabi or French as well. Um, so when every object is gendered, that's going to be the lens through which your characters see things, you know. So um we have a challenge <laughs> you know it's not easy because the other problem is of course english is so imbued with the bible and idioms from the bible and um and shakespeare as well so these are our pitfalls and our minefields and all of this stuff that we have to avoid but at the same time we have to let the spirit show through so my um advice is just to follow the spirit really because that's what's going to come through your writing going to come through your storytelling whether it's in visual art or whether it's in film you got to follow the spirit because otherwise you can get so tied down in the um limitations of english that uh we have to to explore and we have to expand so don't be afraid of neologisms don't be afraid to you know make new space so where I come from on that. Incredible, yeah, thank you. That's, I think that's a really important question as we think around language and, and place as well, or you know, the, the zameen and, and thinking where, where each um, kind of culture comes from and where we're placed as well. Um, so thank and you. Can I add to that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and just you know, as a visual artist thinking about visual language, um, over the last few years, I've developed my own visual vocab and I think part of what it's about for me is I've spent so much time kind of hiding from my culture and, you know, being embarrassed of being Indian. And as an adult, I've reclaimed all of that. And I'm doing that through my art as well, where when I get to create the work that I, that truly speaks to me, it's the work that's really bold, vibrant, colorful, like completely maximalist, patterned and that's what I love about Shauna's work too is when because I did have rest and power based off of uh Shauna's book Selector of Souls um, a lot of the imagery came from her words and I find that your work is really maximalist too with your language there's so much information so much um you can glean from that visually and I feel like I do that with my work as well I just pack it with all of these references to our culture and hope that when people look at it, 
especially people who are South Asian, they're going to feel reflected in that work. That's the spirit. We have to be represented. We have to be at the table. We yeah. have to assert ourselves and our stories matter. That's yeah. the important thing for me. Absolutely. And I think just to note too, Sandeep, I think I've shared that with you before, sharing the same testament, you know, just the shame of growing up and being being Punjabi. I mean, it was truly, you know, being brown or any sort of, you know, um, uh, figure in that way. And being woman, it was cared. Uh, and, you know, I know that Jesus shared that too, the, the shadam and the shame and in different contexts, naturally, and the traditions around that. And what does it take? So thank you so much for sharing the, you know, and your own visual language and also Shauna in your, in your language and as we, as people are observing um, films like that. So that's great. Yeah. If you want to stay true to the story, we got to stop trying to make it like, Oh, this film needs to be accessible for everybody or tone this down or there's mm -hmm. too many subtitles. Like you just have to forget that. Just be true to the story and you know, people will, We'll get it and appreciate it. You can't do that. You have to be like so personal. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember some people said, um, with because we're girls, there'd be dialogue, which is like one line, <laughs> but there's still be talking and talking. And people would be like, Pelty, I think I'm missing a lot because, <laughs> but you know what? It's too bad. This is the gist of what they said. I can't put every word, but I need to have it in that language. You know, we can't always just cater to every, it's our time now to push and make our own space. Mm -hmm. and be true to that story you can't say well you know in that big climax scene can we now do it in english like you just cannot do that because language is is such a through line to everything right um to culture to history to everything and um we need to stop trying to make our work fit you know the mainstream they can fit to us now you know what I mean? <laughs> That's how I feel anyway. I, I'd like to say that that involves making new symbols. Mm -hmm. It involves actually changing the, the symbol set or the symbolism that we've been given with English because um, the West has certain symbols that we have the opposite. So let's say an owl is the symbol of wisdom in the West. And of course, for us, it's Uluda Patha, you know, it's absolutely the, the opposite. So um, I think we have to let the story itself create the symbols so that the, the, the viewer or the reader, in my case, is fully aware that this is not happening in a space that they are familiar with if they are mainstream. And if it is happening in a space in which you are familiar, you recognize and you go, oh, yeah, you know. So I think part of it is that we don't imagine ourselves as audience enough. Only once we start to think of ourselves as the audience, instead of saying, oh, well, you know, I'm writing this for the West because it's in English, you know, only then can you actually say, remember those symbols? And let me define for you what they are, let's say, in, in the story. But um, these are my symbols and they're fun. Yeah, that's a really important uh piece to kind of share as well the symbols around language and what those kind of rep and the representation around them too can i add so. one thing as well um <laughs> speaking about symbols shauna and um Baljeet, like you know not having to cater to everybody it's okay for people to sit in that discomfort of you know maybe reading a book or watching your film or looking at my work and not fully understanding it you know and sit with that kind of discomfort of like I don't know what this means. I don't know what this word means. 
I don't know what this language means. And maybe that will push that person to learn more about it, Mm -hmm. you know, or just have that awareness of, you know, maybe that's how we felt in certain spaces and places where we feel uncomfortable or that sense of discomfort. Um, But just that general idea, it's okay to be uncomfortable because that's when you're pushed to grow. Or ignorant. I mean, I I feel so ignorant about Sikhism when I first started Mm -hmm. writing what the body remembers. I became aware that I knew nothing. <laughs> so I really had to search through and, and read and, and, and ask my elders and things like that. And um, I, I now look back and cringe, you know, at my own ignorance. But what the heck, you know, you start somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a comment here from that I would like to share um, from Maharuni, Maharuna, sorry, Ghani. Um, she says, thank you, thank you, Baljeet Sangra for making this film and sh- and sharing the truth. Yes, agreed. We all need to stand in the truth and act in truth. Yes, personal story is a universal story. Power to you. So much meaning with what with, with you and this family has shown, bravery, courage, and truth. So I just wanted to share that comment. And then to, uh, to uh, going to our second question, and, and this is for uh, Sandeep um, from Satwinder Baines. <laughs> Sandeep, how do we work on female anger against injustice and for it to be channeled into action and healing? Uh, Good question. Um, First, recognizing that it's okay to be angry and understanding that you can use that anger to fuel important work. Because I, throughout my life, I sat on a lot of anger and I felt often very helpless, you know. But at some point I realized I can't just sit on this anger. I have to do something with it. Otherwise, I'm not, I'm not changing anything. I'm not affecting anything. And so for me, I've been using my anger as a catalyst to create the work that I do so that it can affect change. Um, so I think really like acknowledging our anger, looking at our anger, being okay with our anger, because oftentimes, you know, we're told as women, we're not allowed to be angry. And we can't show those types of emotions. Um, but, you know, we are angry and we want to show those emotions and mm-hmm. we want to use those emotions to catalyze change. And so, yeah, it's just, I, I feel pretty good with my anger. We're pretty good friends now. And uh, it's been really helpful in my career to create the work that I do and, you know, just sort of encourage others to, to feel that anger as well and that discomfort and you know use that as that shauna i think you wanted to share i just wanted to say that when i was writing the selector of souls i uh learned the concept i don't know where it came from to me but uh i learned the concept of rational anger Mm. and i like that idea that there are times when it's bloody rational to be angry and you have a right to be angry as long as you're not you know turning that into destruction and you're turning it in some creative direction and making change, as you said, you know, I think it's perfectly rational sometimes to be angry and all anger is not irrational. And also the, how anger sits in our bodies and, you know, you know, and that comes from all sorts of different places in our, in our lives, but um, for it to be uh, outputted into these sort of narratives and storytelling and um, is, is quite incredible. I have a question uh, from Alana, and she has shared, um, which I thought was quite, quite unique. Um, How do you know what to share about your culture or experiences that relate to culture and identity? 
and what to keep private. If you, Baljeet, if you'd like to, yeah, okay. you want to share? I was just right. going to say an example, like say with Because We're Girls and other work I've done, and you get that access, um, you know, it's a real privilege, you know, so you have to, you have a whole lot of trust, you know, because um, people get used to you, they trust you, they, be, they don't even know the camera's there. And so when you're crafting the film together, you have to really honor that. But, you know, if you look at what's available, say in TV with reality TV and people just put like so much trauma on the screen, you, I, I don't agree with that. You know, less is more, you know, you have to respect and honor the people that, you know, you're representing. It's important. You know, they have children. You don't need every little thing. It's not, you don't need the detail of an assault. You don't need that. I, I personally feel that. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, as a culture, we just put like everything up there. And I just don't think that's necessary. You don't need to be such a voyeur into people's lives, you know? And I think there needs to be a balance. You can't just have, um, if it's something challenging or difficult, there's also people are so multifaceted. There's joy in our life. There's celebration in our life. You know, something, there's contradiction in our life, you know, like, uh, yeah. And I just think, you know, we're, we're so much bigger than one thing and you should really, and if you're um, an artist and you're interpreting something, you really have to honor where those stories are coming from and um you know and challenge stereotypes too like I, I i really think you know the personal is universal keep it true to who they are and honor that you know and like if you were like say with because we're girls i mean if that was my family how would i want that film up there you know like mm -hmm. i don't know i just felt that anyways so i think that's which we're really seeing a really cool shift now um all across the arts around representation matters. I think that's super important because you do have a certain access in telling a story. You know, I could ask 10 questions um, to South Asian and somebody, no, I could ask the same 10. I think I'm going to probably be able to get a little deeper. I, it, it'll just go that way. I, I just feel that way. And it's, it's our time to tell our own stories. We've, we've seen the sort of um, anthropological look at <laughs> our stories for too long. And, um, you know, Absolutely. and I, I just really, you know, it, besides like story of telling like film, but just even in public spaces, like the art gallery, you know, I took my nephew and I saw Sandeep's artwork at the art gallery and we took pictures. That's incredible experience, you know, and I've gone to the Surrey Art Gallery and there's been incredible, you know, showings of South Asian artists and dialogue and mainstream spaces like this is so or book reading. This is so important. We we got to stop feeling that we need to be on the fringe. You know, we're here, we've arrived. Like this, we need to just keep it moving. Some profound words there, Buljeet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very inspiring. I'd like to add something about retelling of uh, stories of women from the past, um, because sometimes we need to go back and retell the stories because they have been told with such Orientalism and such exoticization. And there's a reason that we are revisiting some of these stories. For example, Noor Inayat Khan's story has been told many times, but always told by men, but always told by people from the West. In fact, in some cases told in a gospel format. I mean, it's, it's really quite annoying the way her stories have been told. Mm -hmm. So for me, the, the problem with that is also, I don't want to betray her again. Mm -hmm. so I have to be very careful not to go down that route that other stories have been you know so it's not just what do i bring to the table as a south asian but it's also 
how do I do this without re-betraying the person who I feel has already been betrayed? Mm -hmm. um, so I was just reaching to grab uh, stories for South Asian Supergirls. So Shauna, what you were saying about retelling women's stories, this was such an important project for me last year. I was one of 10 South Asian female illustrators mm -hmm. and there are 50 profiles of South Asian women past and present. And, you know, it was such a, a joy, but like such an important project for me to be involved in because we didn't have these stories growing up. We didn't. Right? We didn't have these role models. We didn't have any of this. And so now we get to be a part of that change. We get to be, you know, the role models that are creating the work for the younger generation. Um, and so it really is just like such a point of pride. And going back to that question, I think taking the parts from your culture that resonate with you, the things that you want to talk about, um, as long as you're being authentic, you know, and not doing what you think you should be doing, but taking points of reference that are, you feel strongly about and you feel passionate about and you want to talk about them or make a film about them, write about them, create art around them. Absolutely. I think it's also, you know, sharing perspectives in, in our culture that perhaps no one has really known about. Um, you know, I did the photography exhibition on um, on Gesh, and it was, you know, uh, Sikh men and uh, showcasing their hair, their unshown hair. And so, and that's never really been done, especially from a South Asian woman, female, going into these homes. And, and so um, just that note of, you know, how do you, what to share about your culture and how to do it is, it's, I think it's also very difficult. I mean, I think it's, um, and, and to that part of access, right, Shana? I mean, who gets of access to these and who gets to, who gets to talk about them, who gets to um, share their ideas and, and who gets to mark that. Um, I think that yeah, all those pieces are related. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the access um, uh, cannot be betrayed, that, that trust that somebody has placed in you by giving you access, that cannot mm -hmm. be betrayed. Mm -hmm. I, Absolutely. Think, uh, I, I have actually run stories by people who I felt might have been uh, the, the basis for it and have I fictionalized it enough and Quite often they did not recognize themselves, so that was good. But often they did and said, well, you know what? It's not me, actually. It's similar, but it's not me. Mm. <laughs> but real person is so much more than that. So like Baljeet said, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, maybe this would be a good, a good um, question to maybe possibly to end off on. It's from Anoop Dollywal. Uh, on Facebook, and she asks, do you folks have any advice for emerging South Asian female artists? Uh, maybe uh, Buljeet or Shauna? I would just say go for it. <laughs> you know, go for it and just give it the commitment that it needs. And just because you can self-publish doesn't mean you should, you know? The things that you need to do to grow yourself as an artist and, uh, you know, there's so many uh, ways in which you can do it that I have not even imagined. So you take it forward, you go for it. That's great advice. Sandeep, do you have any <laughs> wisdom or? Always. Um, <laughs> yeah, again, like echoing Shauna, just mm -hmm. do it. Um, but really put the work and the time in to figure out what your unique voice is. Mm you know, because everyone has a unique voice. And I think sometimes we start out by emulating other people's work or doing things that are trendy or popular that don't necessarily speak to what we want to talk about. But I mean, it's always a good starting point. 
just to try different things and kind of see where you land. But um, really just try to be authentic to who you are, create work that is interesting to you. Don't worry about pleasing other people while mm. you're in this process of figuring out, you know, who you are as an artist and what your voice is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would echo the same. Be true to yourself. I mean, in film, um, it'll be a long journey. So it's really got to speak to you because you're going to stick with it for a long time, you know, try to get funding, pitch everything. Um, I, I, I was at a festival and a young uh, a filmmaker came up to me and he wanted to chat and he had this project and he was going to be pitching it. And he the way he was, he never really talked about the story. It was like, this could be marketable to here, or this could be here. And I could, you know, like all these other things, but never the story. And I'm like, story is everything. Yeah. What's the story? I go, does this story resonate with you? Do you love this story? Does it touch you? Do, are you going to be committed to the story? He's like, well, no, but it could be doing this. It could be do that. It could be my calling card. It's like, no, bring it back to story and what resonates to you. Mm. Don't, you know, just think of a marketing plan and that's what you're going to go pitch with. It's got to be back to story and your connection to that story, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, and also too, I think as a women, um, like with, and because we're girls, the majority of the women that work behind this, the majority of the crew behind the scenes were women. And I thought that was really important with this film to have, you know, the women composer, women sound designer, women editor, uh, like wherever. I think that's really important. And I definitely think, you know, we need to help each other. You know, if you can open the door, bring more people with you. So I think that's really important. And, and one more thing, and that is tell the story that only you can tell. Yes. Really important to me anyway. What a beautiful way to land and uh, conclude our conversation today. Um, it's been a truly an honor to be in the presence with you all virtually and together. Um, and I hope in the future we're able to actually share a meal in person and not to have these, uh, these ways of living currently. So I just want to share a warm welcome to uh, Sean and Baljeet and uh, Sandeep for coming here today. Um, so thank you. And I just want to share a, a few more sentiments. Um, on behalf of Surrey Art Gallery, I'd like to conclude today's conversation by thanking our amazing speakers um, and also uh, my incredible colleagues here at Surrey Art Gallery, along with Indian Summer Festival's talented team in tech. To have our first live and virtual event partnered with Indian Summer Festival has been so lovely. So thank you, Suresh and Laura. And congratulations to your 10th anniversary this year. And a special thank you to our audience for tuning in today and joining us, sharing your comments from far and near um, while you may be sitting in a city across the nation or right close by, your presence has been truly felt today. So I just want to say thank you again and, and what a true honor and uh, what a rich uh, dialogue and discussion. So hope to see you all soon. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye.